Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's Friday, March 1st, 2024, thus positioning us past some of those fictional days of February. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump both spoke at the southern border yesterday. Big border, different places. There are two dimensions to consider of these speeches. There's policy and there's performance. The Trump performance was vintage Trump in ways both effective for him and puzzling to us. He shared a few anecdotes. They were all true. They were about migrants here illegally who have recently committed horrific crimes or are alleged to have done so. And yes, she has all the qualifiers about that these people are the exceptions and most migrants are peaceful and not criminal. And I suppose it's very insensitive to use the phrase illegal immigrant, even if it's about a murder and stabbing someone in the face or abducting a uh, college undergrad for a time. Yeah, that's all true. But the human anecdote works. Biden tells it about Ukrainians, protesters of Israel, uses the anecdote to illustrate their broader points about the war in Gaza. It's effective. Humans just connect through other humans. And of course, Trump is going to do it. And of course, Trump is going to do it in his Trumpian way. Then Trump moved on to tying these particular tales of horror to policies. And if you broke the law, we caught you, we deported you, or we did something else. What was the something else that just hung there? Was Trump implying something threatening or just being vague? It's hard to tell. He did want us to know that his policies worked. He mentioned his favorite policy several times. But the best was remain in Mexico. You stay in Mexico. We had catch and He didn't say anything about what he would do differently next time around. Remain in Mexico, officially the migrant protection protocols was opposed and eventually, after court fights, eliminated by the Biden administration. They're supposedly considering it anew. So that's a fair enough contrast. Trump is proposing a harsher treatment of people who are trying to come into America. He will not let them in America. He will make them stay at the border on the Mexico side. The Mexicans oppose this. It's probably a plus for Trump. But it is a policy difference, right? Biden articulated a new policy that he'd like to pass. It wasn't surprising. He says that if Congress just provides the funding, he will hire more judges, and this way they will get to the giant backlog of cases. Right now, there is an eight-year delay in a judge hearing a migrant's case. It is a big lure to come to this country, and if it were to be whittled down, that would be a big deterrent. Here's how Biden put it. When, when, when the criminal ju- gangs say, we'll get you north, what's 8000 bucks? They say, no, wait, let me get this straight. I'm going to go north. It's going to cost me six, eight, probably more closer to eight, I guess, $1,000 equivalent. And I'm going to get there. And in six months, they may be able to get rid of me. I don't know, man. Six months, seven years, two different things. A person who's thinking about entering the United States understands the cases to be decided in a few weeks or months instead of five to seven years. They're less likely to come in the first place. 
Trump didn't get that much into detail, any details. He mostly just said his old policies, which he named and emphasized with his cadence. He just talked about those policies as being superior. Now, to be fair, under his old policies, immigration was lower. Pre-pandemic, it doesn't make sense to compare the time of COVID, but it was lower pre-pandemic than it has been for the past few years. I don't know that Trump, however, was focused on this fact enough to make his point. He went on riffs and side streams, like this attempt to rebrand the governor of California. Now you look at what this governor, Newscom from California, isn't that his name, Newscom? I don't care that it's juvenile. I wonder if a border speech is the time to engage in the kind of rhetoric that he delights in during rallies. I don't mean out of propriety. I mean, it's a question of focus. I'm probably wrong, right? I'll say that about myself. How the media these days works is that the nightly news or the equivalents will help Trump out a little bit because their audiences don't want to be confused. Wait, what's this guy saying? And they'll pull clips that at least are sensible and scan as, oh, that's his border policy. But the people who would normally high-five each other, the Trump stands in online Trumpistan, they'll hear about new scum and think that it's the most clever of witticisms. Biden, by the way, was not perfectly, exquisitely fluid in his speech, but he really did get his point across. I mean, Trump did too. It's just that a bunch of his points were purely visceral and less policy-oriented than Biden's. And that part, that Trump is more from the gut and less policy oriented than the Biden White House, that's not a surprise. These, though an interesting juxtaposition, these events per se will not redefine the presidential race, but it does look likely that the border, not as an event, but as an issue, the border will be among, if not the most important issue to Americans in 2024. On the show today, I spiel about the overall conundrum of interviewing politicians who spew forth nonsense. But first, like addicts who need a drug more and more each time to get high, we as human beings habituate to everything. We habituate to outrage. We habituate to the good and the bad. And there is an election cycle upon us, and it's worth asking, is there a way to break the cycle? There is. My next guest, Cass Sunstein, law professor at Harvard, veteran of the Obama administration, has a new book out with a co-author that looks at the problem, overall the phenomenon of habituation. It is called Look Again, The Power of Noticing What Was Already There. Cass Sunstein, up next. No matter what it is in the human condition, we tend to habituate to it. We get used to it. And from that, I say, thank God, but also Satan be damned. It does cut both ways. This is the topic of the new book, Look Again, The Power of Noticing What Was Always There. It's co-authored by Tali Sharot and Cass Sunstein. It was a bit of a satanical truth session, and I say that not just because it's an anagram of the co-author's names. I struggled with many of the chapters, but I also enjoyed the overall message in this book on habituation. Cass, welcome back to The Gist. 
Thank you. A pleasure to be here. So I know your last books were Nudge and Noise. Tell me you didn't think of calling this one Notice. Almost, but only for a moment. (laughs) Yes. See, you're better at branding than I am. But you must have noticed how often that we fail to notice things that are important and how often when you design, for instance, when you were working with the government, you came to design policies, you must have said, well, it's doing good. It's just that people don't notice it. That's true, but that might be because people are busy and kind of focused on their family and their jobs and not focus on what not focus on what's coming out of Washington. So the fact that we can't focus on everything is a broader phenomenon than the phenomenon of habituation. Yeah. So tell me one of the fun things we could do is talk about the different ways that habituation occur. We all know that there is habituation throughout life. We get used to the good times. We even get used to the bad times. But your book prompted me to think about specifics. What are some of your favorites? And then I'll hit you with some of mine. Okay. So um, we have data suggesting that when people are on a really nice vacation, let's say it's for a week, the peak time is 43 hours in. So after 43 hours, it's it gets worse. And that's a little surprising. One reason it happens is that the first 24 hours plus, you're getting used to the place. You might be a little baffled. Uh, 24 hour, 43 hours in, it's amazing. It's fantastic. And after that, you kind of start getting used to it. We also know that if people are doing something that's really good, like listening to a piece of music or getting a massage, to break it up into segments makes it actually better. That's counterintuitive for people. People think, I want to keep listening to the song. I want to hear, keep hearing the concert. If you break it up, you have a better experience. And it's because the drop-off in amazement, let's say 45 minutes in, uh, gets stopped. And then you have a second round of amazement when you uh, listen twice. It's also the case, this is a little eerie, that if you give people an economic incentive to lie, meaning they're going to make money if they lie, a lot of people will do it, not horrible lies, but real lies. And the amygdala, the part of the brain that registers strong emotion, is firing like crazy during the first lies. But as the lies continue, people get less uh, uh, ashamed of themselves and the amygdala doesn't register as much disapproval. It gets really quiet by the end of the day. Mm. So a couple follow-ups about all those studies. The first example that you gave about the vacation, is that independent of the length of the vacation? We have probably, we have data on one vacation of a week or two weeks and 43 hours in is the peak. Uh, It's probably reasonable to say that that's generally true. So if someone's on a two-month vacation, 43 uh, hours in is going to be the best. But uh, we're data people and we do not speculate except humbly and cautiously. That gives me hope for the three-week vacation, which I always said, oh, by the time you get there and by the time you get back, you're not enjoying it. But, you know, the 43rd hour is contained within that three-day weekend, so maybe I should take more of them. Yeah, short vacations, numerous, probably are greater than long vacation, one. Yeah. And that lie study, I think, well, tell me if I'm wrong, your co-author, Dr. Sherrod, she came out with that and then people immediately said, aha, Donald Trump. Was that the one? Uh, Yeah. I mean, we're we're not very political here. We just do the science. But some people thought they use the T word. 
Well, do you think, uh, well, can you uh, elucidate in which ways you think it does apply and in which way, because you are a scientist, the science isn't there to to map on everything found in that study to uh, some of Donald Trump's um, tactics? Well, let, let's, there are a couple of things to say. One is, uh, okay, I'm going to tell you something that's not true. Uh, Tiger Woods retired from golf and announced that he's running for the presidency. In fact, it was a very big announcement when Tiger Woods said he was retiring from golf and running for the presidency, and people were amazed and intrigued to see that Tiger Woods is running for the presidency. You may have noticed what I just did was I repeated a lie three times. Mm-hmm. And the uh, threefold statement of a lie uh, tends to make people believe it because it's easy to process. So if you repeat something that's false on multiple occasions, uh, this is called the illusory truth effect. People of all kinds, well-educated people, not so well-educated people, people of very different demographics, they tend to believe the thing is true. And the reason is about how the brain works. If something easy to process, we tend to think it's more likely to be true. So if, let's say, a random political figure whose last name begins with a letter, says something that's false on multiple occasions, uh, a large number of people will tend to think it's true, even if it's been very uh, clearly debunked by, let's say, objective, reliable observers. Yes, um, I've read a lot of the research into this. And for a time, I think the state of the art research was that even when lies or propaganda or misinformation is corrected, not only does it not work, it tends to have the effect of reinforcing the lies and propaganda. And that might be due to habituation. It might be due to some remnant of the correction, at least repeats the thesis to correct. So that contributes to the rule of three. But have but I always did wonder about that. I, I said, well, then all we would do is believe in lies and we'd, you know, cross against red lights and get hit by cars all the time. So something different seems to be going on. And correct me if I'm wrong, if if that's even possible, given what you know. But is there new research showing that misinformation, even repeated misinformation, is more correctable than we once thought? Well, we want to be careful. So there are two things that are true. One is that people have a truth bias. So if you go into a town and ask, how do I get to the gas station? And someone says, go here and there, you'll probably think I should go here and there, not that person's trying to get me lost. So people right. typically hear something and they believe it's true. Second is true that if you hear something two times or more, it's easier to process and people will tend to believe it's true. That doesn't mean that if I tell you Tiger Woods is retiring and running for president, and I tell you right after Tiger Woods is still playing golf and certainly not running for president, you will on reflection think, oh, I guess he's running for president. The correction worked. It's just that there's some part of your brain that will remember the falsehood, not that all things considered, you'll see the falsehood is true. There's a very impressive paper called The Elusive Backfire Effect from a few mm -hmm. years which finds across a wide range, if people are corrected in a falsehood by a credible source, it doesn't matter if they're Democrats or Republicans, they will credit the correction. So if some external organization, a nonprofit or a government organization that's trustworthy, tells you that something you believe about the crime rate is false, you will think on reflection, oh, I guess what I thought wasn't true. So we don't want to go to town 
with the um, ineffectiveness of corrections. To repeat the falsehood in an extremely excited way in the process of correcting it is probably less smart than leading with the truth and not leading with the false statement that you're correcting. Right, right. It all, but this all seems to hinge on what do you really, what do the truth tellers, the fact checkers, the correctors of falseness really want? Do they want to correct the truth or do they want to, I mean, there can be a whole number of other motivations, uh, do some fundraising around the, uh, how appalling the lie was or excite their audience about the um, claim itself. You know, I, I think a lot of the fact checking industry, I find fault because I know some of these studies that you're talking about, it doesn't seem that, that they're comporting themselves based on the evidence of how best to correct the truth. Right. All I'd say is we know that if something's easier to process, people will tend to think it's true. That doesn't mean something that's easy to process, like the Earth doesn't go around the sun. Actually, the sun goes around the earth. That's very easy to process, but I don't believe it to be true. If I heard, as I have heard far too often, that Peyton Manning and not Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time, I still know the truth is St. Tom is the greatest quarterback of all time. Right. And then Patrick Mahomes comes in from left He's field. He's really good. Not quite there. <laughs> um, the the illustration of the truth effect in the book is great, and I hadn't known it, but maybe if I was much older, I would. For a time, there was a widespread belief that Chesterfield cigarettes were bad for you. Oh, no, not because of lung cancer, because of, well, you tell me. Okay, there was a story that the cigarettes were responsible for some terrible outbreak of things in cars and in disease that were affected by cars all over the country. And it was just because of random stuff and it went viral, but it wasn't true. The, the Chesterfield cigarette example is people convinced themselves or a rumor got started that they caused leprosy. That I thought was fascinating. That was that was the disease that was based on repetition and randomness. It's a little like thinking that UFOs have landed in Los Angeles, where uh, there is a set of things that could happen by which a large number of people might believe that. But it's actually a movie, not Los Angeles. In terms of uh, habituation and the effects, the positive effects of change. Uh, dissipating over time. I'm thinking about the rear brake lights in cars. And when these were first mandated, I remember the first couple times I saw one, I was like, Ooh, oh, wow, that car is braking. And now it's not as if I'm slamming into cars <laughs> willy-nilly, rear-ending them. But the effectiveness of that has, I think, lessened quite a bit. And that's because, I think, of uh, habituation. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about habituation. If you um, go into cold water, the first minute might be excruciating and horrible, and then after a while, you will diminish in your sensitivity to the water's coldness, and it won't bug you so much. And this is true of hot water also. If you go into a smoke-filled room, uh, 
depends on your sensitivity, of course, but chances are the first minute is going to be a lot worse than the 40th minute. So too, with respect to safety equipment, potentially, where the first time you see, let's say, something that's indicative of a warning or something happening with the car, uh, it's a surprise signal in the brain that goes off, and the brain is very alert to changes, less attuned to what's constant. So underline this and maybe put it in bold letters and put it in the sky. Uh, Is there a surprise signal? If there's a surprise signal, people are on the alert. If there isn't, they're thinking kind of what else is new. And this can be true for automotive equipment also. Once the surprise signal is gone, people's um, sensitivity to it is diminished. Right. So there are more surprise signals. We're talking about cars, more surprise signals associated with cars in the name of safety these days. I was in a parking lot and a car was backing up and it wasn't a commercial vehicle. It was just a regular truck and they were beep, beep, beeping. And I said to myself, well, that's new. And I suppose the first dozen times I hear it, I'll take notice, but now I've become habituated to it. Does the auto industry know this and care? Uh, I know you've done some work with, say, compensating the costs or figuring out how much to spend on highways based on you know the value of a human life, but is it a trend that the auto industry or other industries based on safety, maybe airlines too, but the auto industry comes out with an innovation. They could say, hey, look, we did the studies and look how this saves lives or has, yeah, this saves lives. But after two to five years, no one's really doing the studies anymore. And it's all been priced into the experience of driving and defensive driving. This is a great question. And I'll give you a few thoughts. Uh, I worked under President Obama helping to oversee government regulations, including those involving automobile safety. And we were alert to the phenomenon we're discussing, that is diminished sensitivity to uh, uh, an innovation. We were alert to it, though it's only in doing this book that I've gotten kind of really up to speed on where the science is. Uh, Here's what we knew and reacted to. Uh, Suppose you're driving a car and it makes a beep, beep, beep because you're changing lanes. If even if you've heard that beep, beep, beep a thousand times, if it's intermittent and comes out of the blue, it's going to startle you. If you're going back, let's say in a quite dangerous way and the car makes a really terrible noise, Uh, that terrible noise, even if you've heard it before, isn't going to be routine. It's a little like if you live in a neighborhood that has uh, big noises at nights with with parties, you will sleep better than someone whose first night is there. But when people are doing what's done at a loud party, you're not going to not notice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some government regulators, and this has been true for graphic warnings are alert to the fact that if you see a graphic warning a thousand times, it's not going to seem graphic anymore. It's going to kind of turn gray. So they rotate. They have different warnings over time. And uh, automobile safety equipment is kind of the neural equivalent of uh, rotating. Mm -hmm. intermittent beep, beep, beep. Cameras on cars, which I had some involvement is where you can see in back, uh, you might be kind of used to seeing in back, but if you see a little kid in back of you or a dog, it's not like you're going to say, oh, I guess I'll keep going. You'll think, oh my God. Yeah. 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 And uh, I guess this is why the New York State 
or New York City decree that all restaurants have to have the sign, all employees must wash hands, I think it's probably having less of an effect than it did 20 years ago when it was first posted in the bathroom. Now it just seems to be uh, the background hum of going to a restroom in a New York City restaurant. That's that's a great example. And to take it as the surprise signal is what the the, the human brain and our ancestors, the unicellular organisms, non-brains, but yeah. uh, entities, what, what they were attuned to. So think of it when I was at a wedding not long ago in which the best man said, think about to the to the groom, think about the first time you kissed your bride and never when she before you were married, probably wasn't that kind of couple who didn't kiss before their first the, the, before they got married they had kissed before think of your first kiss and never forget your first kiss for couples that's uh, a, a terrific and neurologically smart thing to say yeah 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 so let's keep it with cars there's so much about cars and automobile safety does this indicate that the best way to have safer cars and safer driving experiences is to know about the surprise signal and keep thinking of ways to tweak and update the surprise signal? Or does it indicate that the best way is knowing that we will habituate to signals and surprise signals, invent something like the crumple zone, passive, outside the attention of the driver, and it's probably responsible for saving more lives than any beep, beep, beep. I think you're right. And there's something called Vision Zero in Sweden, which is focused on reducing car crashes. And as someone who's hit as a pedestrian a few years ago, I was hit by a car and it wasn't a lot of fun. Not in Uh, Sweden, though, right? Well, it was it was in Massachusetts. It wouldn't Mm. have been great in Sweden, but it was uh, very, very bad in beloved Massachusetts uh, to focus on not fundamentally or not only, I think is the better word, uh, driver choices, but on making things safe for human error. That's what Sweden has done. And we kind of do that with cars. So uh, the way roads are designed, it's not ideal, but the way they're designed, uh, the way automobiles are designed is to a significant extent to make it less likely that people will crash in the first place, even if they're fallible, and less likely that if they crash, they'll get really badly hurt. So that's that's smart, and that's probably the wave of the future. Uh, to supplement that with, uh, let's say, driver attention mechanisms is essential. So speaking of Swedish traffic policies, <laughs> you write about a great term that I will not be able to pronounce. Do you want to give it a try? I, no, I can't pronounce it either. It's something like Hoger Traffic Lomen Lagninningen. Okay, let's say it's something like that. What does that describe and what principle does that illustrate? So what, what Sweden decided was everyone was going to switch from driving on one side of the road to the other side of the road. This is a very dangerous thing to do. You'd expect that if you told everyone in a country, now you're going to be driving on the other side of the road, crash, 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 crash. Yeah. So it's a little like, um, you know, an episode of a TV show, which would be a horror show, maybe a Stephen King show, in which they all go on the opposite side of the road, and then everyone crashes. They all went on the opposite side. 
And there we have the fade out again. You hate the fade out, don't you? Some of you, especially people who already pay and go to subscribe.mikepesca.com and pay to be free of ads, consider this an ad. Don't consider this an ad. I just want you to know I'm pretty proud. I'm just proud that we've gone on talking to Cass Sunstein, that there's more incredible content. I don't want to inundate and deluge everyone else with the content. But if you want in in that content, if you could use a little more Pesca Sunstein, uh, Pesca, many of the guests, this week it's been two or three guests who we do a bonus interview with, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. Again, this isn't an ad. Think of it as just, this is a menu. This is an, uh, there's a brag. This is an audio menu where you get to see many of the offerings and many of the wares. And if you want to indulge us a little more, pay a little more money, to get a little more content and a little fewer ads, except for this one, every once in a while, subscribe.mikepesca.com. And now the spiel. If it's Sunday, it's Meet the Press, which might be correlation. I know it's certainly not flat-out causation. I do think it's actually a reversal of the causal relationship. But anyway, I know it is Friday, and yet on Sunday, Meet the Press, well... The press shall be met, let us just say. And I want to take a little time to analyze and diagnose one aspect so prevalent in those meetings. So politicians go on these shows, do really every interview, and they're armed with tactics. Tactics including answer the question you want to answer, not the question that's asked, or give the appearance of engagement while pursuing one's own agenda, or overwhelming your interlocutor with many, many assertions, a few of which will always get through. Look, it's a platform, and you use the platform. This gives the interviewers, who are surrogates for the audience, but who don't want to be fact-checkers, or they'd have gone into the fact-checking business, it gives them a tough task. They're in a difficult position. Let's illustrate a couple examples. Here was Jake Tapper last week hearing from Senator Tim Scott. Scott was asked about the death in a Russian prison of dissident Alexei Navalny. Let's look at the middle of the challenges that we face today across the globe. The middle of the challenge, uh, you see, front and center is the failure of Joe Biden. And when President Trump was our president, there was no incursion in Ukraine like there was under President Obama. When Trump left office, there was an actual all-out war in Ukraine. And so when you ask the question about keeping Putin in check, you look at the actions and the administration of Donald Trump, and you come to one clear conclusion that without question, Ukraine was safer, the world was safer, and America was certainly safer. Scott said a lot of nonsense there. Some of it is unknowable. I mean, do I really think Hamas's Yahar Sinwar really cared that much about who the occupant of the Oval Office was while executing his years-long plan for the Al-Aqsa flood? I doubt it, but I can't prove it. It's not worth going back and forth about. China was certainly expressing bellicosity towards Taiwan during Trump's tenure, absurd to say not or otherwise. But what should an interviewer do? As an interviewer, luckily we have one here, it's me. I know that the mail's gonna come in. How didn't you correct that? How did you let him get away with saying that? And the answer is, if I followed up on everything that could have been wrong, sometimes that would just be the entire interview. In this particular case, with Tim Scott and those assertions, you would literally be arguing the world. But the counter to the impossibility of the global fact check goes something like, well, then you shouldn't be platforming them anyway. 
all right, fine. What's a consequence of not platforming anyone if you have to fact check the person? You can watch the consequence today. There are entire cable networks which almost never engage in challenging interviews. So I think there is a way to do this, but you do have to pick your battles. And after you pick your battles, you have to pick your weapons. And after you pick your weapon, you have to wield it correctly. So maybe you want to do a dagger, or in boxing terminology, a stick and jab, casting doubt on many of the questionable statements, but not lingering there. What you want to do is bear down on the ones that are really wildly off base and germane to the issue at hand. So after Tim Scott answered the question about the death of Alexei Navalny by saying how much safer everyone was, here's what Jake Tapper said. Well, Navalny wasn't safer. He was poisoned, uh, likely by Putin or the Kremlin, while Trump was president, right? Didn't get into Taiwan, didn't get into Hamas, but that was a good rebuttal. And how you rebut is important. That's the way you do it. I will now play for you, uh, on the other hand, a way I don't think you should do it. Byron Donald was on Meet the Press. He was asked about Donald Trump's supposed newfound popularity with black voters. But then when you layer on the fact that, yes, this is political persecution from the Department of Justice and from radical DAs throughout our country, this is something similar that black people had to deal with the, with the justice system themselves. And so their, their look of it is real simple. Well, dang, if the government's going after him with foolishness, uh, he can't be that bad, especially considering the fact that Joe Biden is terrible at his job. Well, con- Congressman, let's just be clear. All four indictments against former President Trump were brought by grand juries. There is no evidence that the indictments are political in nature, but let me... No. What you do is just say something like, yeah, I know you and other Trump defenders will say these prosecutions are political, but that's why we have the justice system, isn't it? We get it. The audience gets it. He's one of those guys. That's what those guys say. And you're not going to, quote unquote, correct him in that moment. It's not like all your listeners, oh, they're political? Oh, Kristen Welker said something. Now I realize they're not political. And by the way, that grand jury point, like a prosecutor can't get a grand jury indictment for almost anything, Department of Ham Sandwich. But then Donald's went on to engage in the complaint of political prosecution once more. And Welker once more thought she had to emphasize once again, there's no evidence that the indictments against him are politicized. But But there is there actually is. There's also evidence that the prosecutions are warranted, political, but warranted. I mean, literally. The ones brought in New York and Georgia were brought by elected prosecutors who campaigned on broadly bringing indictments against Donald Trump. That doesn't discredit the cases. It's how the system works. But the system is called, in this case, the political system. And in the Georgia case, it's about overturning an election, political. And in the New York case, it's a novel theory connecting a personal payoff to an electoral benefit. They're all inherently political. Does that mean they're politicized as Donald Trump means it? No, probably not. But what he's saying is that something like they're only brought for political advancement, but I do think it's poor pushback overall. I'm not saying the art of insta-correction is easy. It's not. You want to correct all the misstatements. You really do. A few months ago, Matt Gates was on with Tapper and he was making somewhat inaccurate claims. Just in August, you saw the BRICS system uh, that is moving away from the dollar at six new countries, including Gulf monarchies, including even some of the G20 economies in so our own pe- hemisphere. People at home, that's a BRIC is a, a Brazil, Russia, India, China. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, and they are moving away from the dollar. You see-, see that clarification, BRIC, what's BRIC? That, that part's necessary, but I'd have been tempted to add more. I would 
maybe have wanted to say, you know, the dollar is still the dominant reserve currency. More countries than not are trying to adopt the dollar than get away from it. Argentina wants to replace the peso with the dollar. There's no evidence of any BRIC country. They're going to trade more in renminbi than dollars. All that, some version of that. I'd have been wrong to pursue that. There's only so much correction a news consumer can take. And the officials who go on the shows know this, and therefore they use their invitations to spin their tails, knowing even if the anchors clear away much of the webbing, enough of what's left behind will stick. There's no great answer to this, but there is more of a talent than we might realize in the art of reigning in talkers, be they fibbers or flat-out fabulists. It takes great presence of mind. It takes knowing facts at one's fingertips. It takes discernment and skill. And even if you possess all of those traits, the advantage still lies with he who wields the fire hose, not the person who tries to wipe away all manner of wetness. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. That's why we call them. Well, that's not, not why we call them the Quaint Mallards, but that is what they're known collectively when they tour the country as a collective. Michelle Pesca is an ancillary and affiliated act, but not part of the Mallards. She is the director of special projects for Peachfish Productions. The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's Advertise Cast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.